solution is simple. Redirect the resources. I mean, you have to think in terms of compassion and ask yourself, am I the type of person that allows bad things to happen by standing back and not doing anything to help? Welcome to Radical Listening, the Portland podcast where we talk to local artists about their work. I'm your host, Phil Johnson. And I'm your co-host, Clifton Holtznagel. Today on the show, we talk with Mickey Jordan and Chris Harder, who are involved with And From These Streets I Rise at Coho Productions in association with Street Roots Magazine. The show will be live September 11th through 13th online. You can find tickets at cohoproductions.org. Yeah, and I gotta say, uh, coming back to theater is a wild ride, but coming back to theater and including camera and including you know, live mixing and streaming to YouTube, it just, it's a way more difficult task. And this production really does a great job. I think people are going to really enjoy this production, but I also think that they're really going to appreciate the amount of effort that this team has put into doing this. It's, it's highly theatrical, but it's also filmed really well. Yeah. So, and you've got a pretty inside look on it cause you're sound designing it right now. So, right. Um, right. Yeah, I'm working on sound and, um, and, and mostly for me, that's just been mixing and, and miking and stuff like that. But it's, it's been amazing to work with, uh, Sammy, who is the musician and Mickey, who is the playwright and Chris, who is the director and their vision is just so clear and uh, straightforward and i you know it, it shows i think yeah and it's topical and it's wonderful and um i think it's it's it'll be a good for this format from what i've seen and uh yeah i'm excited to see it that's true i mean we we talk it so the play deals with the houseless community and um it's one of the reasons why i i kind of compel you to come see the show or to log on and see the show online because you know, there's a lot of talk right now. You know, there's a lot of things happening right now. We've got Black Lives Matter happening. We've got economic um, injustice, you know, on many levels. And one of the levels that is mostly overlooked is the houseless community. And so for Mickey to bring attention to this is really noble. And um, for her to do the work that she does as a social worker is also very noble. And so I just want to thank her for doing that. And so, yeah, without further ado, let's just get into the interview. Welcome to Radical Listening. Uh, my name is Clifton Holtznagel, your co-host. And uh, today on the show, we have Chris Harder and Mickey Jordan from the project From These Streets, I Rise. We're playing at Coho Theater September 11th through the 13th online. So, um, yeah. All right, uh, online. <laughs> Exciting. Everyone's opening their season with their first online shows. I've been hearing about some of those. So, um, yeah. Thanks for being on the podcast. Uh, Mickey, how are you doing today? I'm very well. Thank you. It's been a very exciting uh, month, to say the least. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and Chris, how yeah. are you? I'm doing well. Yeah, we, we were just getting out of rehearsal an hour ago here. So and we just had a great run through. So I'm feeling I'm happy. Yeah. I'm feeling good. I'm confident. It seems like Tech Week has been getting more and more intense for theaters now. It's always a little bit like going through yeah. all the technical things, but now this added layer. How has that changed, like the tech process? The tech process. <laughs> yeah, um, get right into I'm just it. Curious. Yeah. Yeah, it's good. I mean, it's uh, tech is tech. Tech's always um, um, a little tedious. You know, it's um, it's an exciting time because lights and sound and I mean, in this case, cameras and sound and lights and uh, <laughs> actors. Yeah. And um, we're filming this live in a theater uh, with three cameras set up. And um, we just got the cameras. Oh, gosh. How long has it been? Early, early. Yeah, it's early been like a week, week, I think. Over the weekend. Like that. Yeah. yeah. Wow. Um, nice. So we had a big tech rehearsal over the weekend and. So it was all imagined in my imagination how this might be framed up. So it's really wonderful just to see the work on stage get framed up and come to life yeah. in a sort of a film kind of format. Yeah. In a way. And Mickey, you um, wrote and are starring in this show. Is that correct? 
That is correct. Yeah. Yes. So it, it could could you just give me your elevator pitch on this show? Like, how would you describe the show? Um, this goes back a couple years. So I originally conceived the show about two-ish plus years ago. Um, I've long been a big fan of documentary theater um, styles and forms. And I, I studied a little bit with... Um, um, some folks back in New York uh, about that form. And I always knew I wanted to create my own piece one day, but I just kind of didn't know what it was. I didn't know what the mm. story would be. I just wasn't kind of there yet mentally or artistically. Um, I was kind of getting the itch to create something. Um, I was talking to a close friend of mine about my idea for documentary theater. Um, and I'm a social worker. I work in the emergency department. I work a lot with um, unhoused populations predominantly. Um, and my friend worked at Street Roots and we just thought, well, it'd be really interesting to maybe gather some of these stories from these Street Roots vendors um, and create a theater piece around that and just kind of see what comes up from it. So it really just kind of started not as like an intention to create a play necessarily, um, yeah. but just more to start experimenting with the form of just interviewing, creating that into monologues and then presenting that and just kind of see mm. how that um, manifests. So the initial one was uh, about uh, early last year, I did like a concert version of the piece um, that's very, 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 very different than what we're doing now. This is definitely mm -hmm. more uh, true to, I think, a more theater form. Um, but it was a good way to experiment that early it felt a little bit more like a workshop production. Um, and then I had yeah. this wonderful, wonderful, wonderful opportunity with Coho where they gave me a chance to kind of remount and revisit this piece with a whole, like an entire creative team um, before I did the whole thing by myself. So mm -hmm. I was truly like a, a one man band. Um, yeah. and so this was uh, such an honor to actually have like a whole team, like not just like Chris Harder and Coho, but like all these like tech folks, like everyone just helping this come to life in a live stream. It's kind of, the whole, the whole thing is just blowing my mind. Yeah. <laughs> I'm like, how did I end up here? This is just so freaking cool, especially in the middle of a global pandemic with multiple world crises. I mean, there's just so much going on in our world right now. It just feels like an incredible, incredible honor to get to be back in a theater right now creating. Um, and this is coming from someone um, who myself, I've been on hiatus from acting for well over 10 years. I haven't done any theater at all. So it's, it's like, what a bizarre time to come back yeah. <laughs> into theater and performance and art making. And I'm like, well, what better time than, you know, numerous world crises to like get back into your creative work again. So yeah, I think the thing that rings the most about this play is how timely it is. It felt like, you know, a lot of people are trying to make theater right now in different forms. But you're, you're saying that this kind of came together in this almost magical way and it was happenstance but the piece that you created is actually very relevant to the to the moment that we're in and so i'm just curious when you were crafting this next this new version and adding in all of the um stuff about covid and and in quarantine and stuff so what was that process like were, were, did you go back to the same monologues and to those same people and ask those people questions or did you get new people how did that all come about I, I did. I went back and I re-interviewed some of the folks that I'd interviewed initially for the project. I, I wanted to re-interview more people, but mm. just the reality of COVID and pandemic and just it was just really hard to find folks. Um, yeah. So, yeah, so I did do some re-interviews. So that's where I got some of the updated material from. And then I also went back to some of the old interviews and just kind of dug up stuff that I was like, oh, you know, my first, um, you know, uh, incarnation of this, I didn't really, you know, touch on. Um, kind of police violence much. And my show doesn't go much into that. I mean, I don't, I don't hit every topic right now, but I, I heard some stuff in the interviews from before that kind of touched on some of that. So I was like, oh, well, that needs to go in the show now because that's particularly relevant right now. Yeah. Um, so just kind of listening to the interviews with a new ear. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm curious of if you have talked to any of the houseless people about the protests and how they feel about the protests that are going on in their communities. I'm just curious about that, yeah. I wish I could say I had, but the, when I did the re-interviews, the Black Lives Matter thing hadn't taken off yet. This was yeah. like in, I mean, the, the those protests hadn't really, it was really more about pandemic and quarantine. Yeah. So when I started revisiting the piece, it was more like, oh, let's get some pandemic oriented right. material in it. Um, and then I had the idea, well, do we go back in and try to re, I had to kind of have a stopping point at what, sure, yeah. how many times <laughs> I kind of revisit material with and how many topics and issues I fold into this piece yeah absolutely. Um, so no I didn't have a chance to talk about that with them um but I know that they're very heavily affected by it and impact yeah. I mean they're living in the midst of you know these conflicts right now um, yeah. they don't have shelter from it they don't have a safe place to get away from it so you know maybe right. that'll be another project <laughs> well yeah and it concerns me too because I think about you know like tear gas 
that's out in the street. Exactly. It's like what happens to people who don't have a place of refuge and, from stuff like that. Yeah, and I've seen the police indiscriminately shoot tear gas right right into near tents and you know communities and stuff like that. Um, so yeah, I can just imagine it's very hard. But I also see a lot of those people also protesting in the streets. So um, it's it's good to see. So Chris, how did you get involved on this project? Did you did Mickey reach, reach out to you or how how did you come on board? Yeah, Mickey and I met, um, well, I guess we met in a class, right? I took your Meisner class, yeah. Yeah, and um, and then from there last year when she was working on this show, the, the concert version of this show, she reached out to me and asked for a little feedback on some of the monologues she was working on, the characters, and um, I was just super jazzed i mean she's so good she's like she just um embodies these characters so well and um so i i just really enjoyed working with her for a couple of uh a few coaching sessions you know mm -hmm. and um and then we stayed in touch a little bit and we were going to do a different show for coho we submitted a different play a one-woman show um called on the exhale. On the exhale. I wasn't sure if I was going to say it. <laughs> so I spill the beans. Was this a secret project? Um, uh, I think it's, I, I imagine it's on the back burner somewhere, right? It's sort of sitting back in there. Maybe someday that'll be the right play. But it deals with gun violence. And we we're actually going to do that show as the first show of the season for Coho. And then the pandemic hit. And we, Mickey and I talked about it and we said, you know, this doesn't feel like the right show to do right now. Yeah. Um, and then it just, we in conversations with Philip, I think uh, Mickey had submitted her um, uh, demo reel from last year of this show to Philip at Coho Productions. And um, that sort of stirred the pot on this conversation around this show and bringing it back to life. Wow. Okay. So that's interesting. Yeah. And Hey, gun violence is back in the center. So you've got another show for when this one's done. You got to get yeah, working. There will, gotta be, keep working. there will be a gun show at some point. Yeah. I would imagine. Something Chris already looks that. stressed out. <laughs> I gotta keep going. Keep going. Yeah. So, I, so what is it like? I mean, in a way we're all pioneers in this moment. What is it like to bring theater back to life um, in this way? you know, using live streaming, using, you know, cameras. Uh, and this is a question for both of you. We're all kind of seizing upon this moment of wanting to reinvent theater, wanting to, you know, or, or to keep it going. And, um, you know, so we're all making these adjustments. We're all making compromises. And so what does that feel like in, in your creative process? That's a big question. I think uh, Chris and I are coming at this from such different angles. Like yeah. I said, for me, I've been out of the acting profession for over 10 years. So not only am I just coming back to kind of creating and, and performing my own work, now I'm also folding in cameras. I've never done any camera work. Mm -hmm. um, so when you're talking about tech and rehearsals, like now I'm having to wear this whole new hat of, you know, it's not like the regular blocking I'm used to with theater blocking. You know, you have to really stand in these specific points and that's, you know, one thing when you're shooting a film where you can kind of keep reshooting a scene, but right. I'm trying to get from beginning to end in my whole show and hit all those exact points. So it's, it's just uh, a lot of different hats I'm having to kind of hold and wear. Um, at times it's really overwhelming. A lot of this feels very new to me. Um, and other times it feels incredibly exciting to just be kind of like jumping off the ledge, being like, I'm trying something I've never done before in so many ways. Um, and it feels invigorating. And then the other piece of that for me is I think the especially with these stories that are, I think are so important um, that we get the opportunity to open this up to a wider audience, you know, that I get to invite people from all over the country to watch this and see this, to share in this, to donate money to Street Roots, to donate money to Coho. Like that's, um, we miss live audience. I can't wait for like live theater to happy, happen again. I'm hungry for it. Um, but there's a part of me that's really excited to, well, let's see what we can do with this opportunity because there's something here, you know? Yeah. 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 And I, I think I, just to build on that, like, it feels like a theater piece. It's where, where, um, there's really no set. It's a, it's a, we're in a black box and it's simple. There's a big black curtain. Um, yeah, there's a three camera setup, but 
Jennifer Lynn is doing the lights. She's designed the lights and they're so beautiful. I mean, um, like I could just sit in the audience and watch the show and, um, and it feels, it's, it's so cool just to see a live theater piece and be in the theater. Um, so we're not hiding the seats. We're finding really interesting ways to frame it up and in this space. And, um, I'm excited. I mean, I mean, I'm really excited to work on camera, you know, I mean, I feel like I've been working on camera more recently because of this, uh, COVID, um, sort of lockdown and it's sort of forcing me to and us, I think, to be creative and, um, innovative. And, um, I feel like we're bringing a theater piece to the screen and uh in a really unique way and i love that it's going to be a live stream so yeah i mean yeah. what does it feel like to be a film director <laughs> i love it i mean i um i love the the composition aspect of it like really like crafting finding the right frame and the move of the camera that um is motivated in some way or adds to the narrative. I'm just, it's really exciting. I feel like I'm learning so much and um, time has been a little crunched to figure some of these compositions out and sort of move into the film aspect of this piece. But um, it's really, I'm just impressed. We've, we're, we've taken a lot of risks. We've sort of, mm-hmm. um, like we could have, we could have just sort of settled in a long time ago on this is going to be the thing, and we keep pushing for something more dynamic and more exciting and more specific and clear and um, theatrical. Mm-hmm. So I love it. Great. I had some questions about the music because you talked about how this was a a, a more of a concert piece at some point, and the piece, uh, the video I've seen of the piece so far, you, uh, there's we'd be remiss if we didn't mention Sammy playing the guitar and singing. And I'm just curious about, and maybe the banjo at one point I was watching like an, an old, like a cell phone video of, of a rehearsal. So I, I couldn't, couldn't hear as well, but um, yeah, I, I'm just curious about how this was Cause, cause the format is, you know, monologues and music interspersed and, you know, characters. And um, I, I'm just curious of what the concert version was like and, and where the songs came from and, and, and what the inspiration was with the music. Yeah, so when I first created the piece, uh, before I was doing interviews or anything like that, I was working with uh, the pianist Jonathan Eater, who was part of that initial concert, and just just singing. I just, you know, working on jazz, blues, lots of old-time music is what I'm drawn to. And so I noticed that a lot of the themes in the old-time music I was drawn to was, you know, kind of Depression-era, you know, blues, yeah. down-and-out songs. Um, so the the I two light bulbs went off at the same time. I was like, wow, these songs would just go really well with the stories that I'm collecting. And then the idea for kind of creating more of a concert as opposed to a more kind of traditional kind of Anna DeVere Smith kind of style documentary show. I just had this idea of kind of this concert idea because um, it just suited things I enjoyed doing. Yeah, <laughs> mm-hmm. I thought they would complement each other well. Um, So that was that was that. And I, I was happy with the way that turned out. When I partnered with Chris, when we started thinking about music, I really wanted this version to be less of a concert. I wanted it to have more of a little bit of a kind of around the campfire feel. So we're kind of gathered around the campfire, having sharing stories. Um, at that time, I wasn't fully aware that the pandemic would be as bad as it was and that we wouldn't actually be able to do that in a theater, you know? Um, But uh, Chris introduced me to Sammy, Sammy Joe Pfeiffer, um, who's, as soon as I heard her music, I was just like, I I mean, I was almost in tears. It's just so, her music is so freaking beautiful. Um, And just the, the soulfulness and the heart of her music, just, it's my show. I was like, well, that this has to be in the show. And as soon as I heard her voice, I also felt like I don't even want to sing as much. Cause last time I sang all the songs, I sang mm-hmm. all the songs, I did all the monologues. It was kind of exhausting, frankly. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, how great to have a partner on stage that can kind of help me kind of carry this music. And I don't have to do, I don't have to juggle all these balls. Um, once Sammy got involved in the show, we realized, well, obviously Chris probably already knew, but she's so talented. I was like, well, she's not like an accompanist. 
You know, it's like, we're not going to have her just up there just playing the guitar in the background. Like she has a presence. There's, there's a character that started to form from her. So the show became completely different than what it was before. Mm-hmm. So now we have this relationship between a Sammy who we kind of identify as the muse of the show, who's kind of guiding me, my character, the woman to kind of be moving through all these characters, these stories. Um, so that was a big collaborative piece. Uh, Chris was a huge hand in, I think, helping us figure out the, the importance of that voice and that partnership um, and trying to get more specific and more specific with what that relationship is between this character and the musician. Yeah, I did. Yeah, and, oh, sorry. No, go ahead. I was just gonna, I was just gonna add this little piece that uh, Sammy wrote original music for this show. After she read the script, she came back with all these songs, right? <laughs> That's um, so cool. I was gonna yeah, ask. There, I was gonna ask is, how that process came about because there is a lot of original music. Yeah, so it's um, it's a little, it's a nice mashup. So she had some old pieces of hers that just totally fit in the show. When like when you hear them, you're like, well, of course this isn't from these streets I rise. They're just they're very soulful. You feel like you're listening to stories about you know folks on the streets, even though that's not what she wrote about. Um, there's just that heart to them. Then she wrote some original pieces based specifically on the monologues that inspired her. And then we also interspersed that with just some really traditional folk songs of just kind of unknown origin. So mm-hmm. it's not all written by her, but I'd say probably at least 75% of the songs are written by her. Um, many of those are original songs. Yeah, I got to work with her on a show a few years ago, Caucasian Chalk Circle, where we were making a lot of the music throughout it. And it was, yeah, wonderful actress <laughs> guitar player and other artistic she's a wonderful human and it yeah it was really fun creating music with her so i'm, I'm glad to know that there's a lot of her original music in there that's great yeah, yeah and she has a little album on uh, not a little album but an album on Bandcamp that's just the music from the show that oh, she's cool. written so oh wow I hope I hope to drop a link. well go check it out on Bandcamp and um download her album it's really awesome you can listen yeah. to the you know our i guess our, our tracks yeah. <laughs> that's awesome <laughs> So um, I'm curious why you left acting. What was the, did you just feel like you needed to step away or like, you know, what was your relationship to acting um, before? I'm like, all right, now we're getting into it. All right, I'm going to roll my sleeves up. (laughs) That's always a difficult question for me to answer because it's not one reason. You know, I was, I graduated from NYU around 2002. Um, I was, you know, in New York City when 9-11 happened. I remember at that mm. time just really questioning myself, my role as an artist at that time. It really obviously shook all of us up. But um, And so from there, you know, well into my late 20s, I pursued acting in New York. I, you know, did the best I could, but it was just kind of running that that mill of um, just doing a lot of work that wasn't meaningful, um, trying to make ends meet, trying to get that agent, trying to get the, like the next the next gig while you're juggling like four day jobs. Um, I just got to the point I was just super burnt out, you know, Um, and I just felt like I wasn't really contributing anything very meaningful in the world. And I felt like I had more to give than Mm. um, kind of the, yeah, the the rat race I was in. Um, I started doing some volunteer work. Um, I'd had some relationships with social workers in the past. I'd found some of the work really inspiring. Um, I did a lot of work with uh, um, uh, rape and domestic violence survivors in hospitals. And I was just like, man, this is, it's interesting because I started to see um, that a lot of my acting skills really carried over into social work um, Mm -hmm. and mental health work. Um, The idea of being present and kind of walking in a room with another human being and uh, just kind of being ready for whatever's in front of you and that ability to kind of be present and kind of of roll with uh, Mm -hmm. people in difficult situations. Um, I noticed that I was drawn to that and I already kind of had a skill for that just as an actor. Um, and so, yeah, I went back to school for social work, um, moved to Portland and um, really missed acting. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, this is a really interesting full circle moment for you then because you're portraying yourself as the social worker on stage, which is, uh, there's so many layers to that. I can't even go into it. <laughs> that's, uh, that's a new element in the show. So before we didn't kind of have that outside mm-hmm. view. I mean, like I said, it was just a concert. Um, I don't know if this was Chris's idea or my idea. I think we might've done this together. It might've been more Chris's idea um, to bring the, I think it was more Chris's idea to bring the social worker kind of voice into this rendition of the piece mm. um, as a way to kind of tie in better kind of my perspective and even creating this, you know, um, but yeah, I think when I went to, when I went, when I changed careers into social work, it wasn't ever with the intention to completely leave the arts. It was always with the hope of coming back and kind of reuniting my kind of social work 
um, profession back with the arts. You know, I was really into, I don't know if you guys have seen the documentary, uh, Shakespeare Behind Bars, um, awesome documentary just about doing Shakespeare in prisons. Um, so I was really uh-huh. moved by that type of work and I wanted to kind of find my way into that. Of course, once I went into social work, I realized, oh, none of that work actually pays. So it's not really right. the most reasonable career. <laughs> <laughs> so just trying to, once again, as a social worker and an artist, figure out, well, how do I sustain myself and do you know work that's meaningful? And this project is certainly like, my big um foray into that yeah. Um, yeah. world yeah awesome so chris um yeah i've always wanted to ask you this and so since you're on the show i feel like it's time <laughs> i'm curious how you got your start in in the acting business um yeah was it was it a church, high school thing a college, school play church? at church as a kid <laughs> yeah i wasn't expecting um, that i mean i moved <laughs> What's that? I said I wasn't expecting that. <laughs> <laughs> um, I went to school in Wisconsin and uh, University of Wisconsin Parkside, a uh, small liberal arts college and with a great theater program. And then after I graduated, I moved to Portland and um, I had never been west of the Mississippi. So I just moved out here and that was 96. Oh, yeah. And um I got connected with <clears throat> my first show was with Stark Raving Theater. And that was before Stark Raving Theater was in the coho space. They were over on uh they had two spaces on Belmont where the theater theater, theater building theater. used to be. And then they had the second space is where Defunct is right now, which oh, is yeah. that, that little backdoor theater behind Common Grounds Coffee yeah. House. And so my first show was at the backdoor theater. Um and um with stark raving and then i um i got involved with barry hunt got connected to him and uh lorraine Barr and suelu theater company began in 98 and i was an ensemble member of that company for seven seasons Mm -hmm. and um i feel like that's where that was my grad school um working with Barry and Lorraine and the Suelo Ensemble. We trained in Meisner and Viewpoints, and we would meet every Saturday and do just a Saturday workshop. We, it was like a little acting gym where we would just train together and work out. Even when we were working on shows, we the, the Saturday workshops were like a separate sort of workout date. And, um, and then I was just in Portland for a while, and so I started freelancing at that point. And, kind of just working around town and meeting people. And um, I've always loved Portland. I love the mountains and the ocean and yeah. I like to fly fish. So oh, there you go. it feels <laughs> like a good place for me to be. <laughs> yeah. Now, correct me if I'm wrong. Did you at any point tell me that you ever were a, um, like a stage hypnotist? Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. I worked for this event. Uh, yeah. I still have that skill. Oh, really? Oh, no. go away happening to us is that what that is (laughs) um so okay tell me more about um, that how did you get into that well i was a clown i mean i was like i started uh i've always been fascinated with clowning and i was like what is an aspect of training that i don't have i never went to school like del arte the world i was meeting a lot of del arte folks and i was like i want some of that clown training and i I started, I was a birthday party clown in my twenties and thirties. I was like doing kids parties and I created a little solo show. (laughs) I was doing comedy magic and making kids laugh. And if kids don't laugh, you're not funny. (laughs) So I was like, I was like cutting my teeth, learning these new skills with like audience interaction, you know, like how do I um, report to the audience and like check in with them and, um, just vibe off that audience in in that kind of way. And I was teaching kids and I, so that was just fun. It was just a lot of fun years. Well, that events company had, um, they were doing a lot of different kinds of events. So they were like my agent Mm -hmm. and um, they do a lot of high school graduation parties. And these parties are like uh, the kids, like the parent, the PTA will put together a big party at the end of the summer or at the end of the school year. And, um, it'll be like an overnight event. And so I, uh, I went to Las Vegas and I trained, um, got training. Where do you train for something like this? 
what's that? So, so there's just a school in Vegas. School of hypnotism. Yeah, there's schools all over. I'm I mean, sure. it's uh, there's a, a mentor, you know, uh, yeah, yeah. a stage hypnotist who's like traveled the world and yeah. um, <laughs> has these skills, and then he starts teaching. And so I went and I trained with him and uh, Jeff Ronning, and um, came back and put together a show, a solo show, a stage hip show. And uh, I started booking these graduation parties through this events company. Oh, so yeah. I, I had a one-hour show. And really, it's about it's about relaxing people, getting people in a suggestible state. Everyone's a volunteer. I can't just hypnotize somebody on the spot, yeah. but it's just fun to like bring people up, get them, help them relax, and then um, let go of their inhibitions, you know. And then I talk them through an improv show. Really, that's you know, <laughs> do you? Uh... That's, that's the way. Do you still use the skill for anything? Um, I feel like it that propelled me into creating my own one man shows that Coho Theater supported back in the day. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't know. I mean, the skills are like, um, I think the relaxation and like the body work and just like, self-talk like self-hypnosis in a way (laughs) um like just connecting with my mind and being aware of where i am right now and and you know it's a stressful time so (laughs) those kinds of things i think help just kind of finding my center grounding myself and yeah that sort of thing i wonder if being a hypnotist is kind of like being a magician in that you you can't really reveal too much about how it actually works. It's so simple, man. I mean, really, you could hypnotize anyone. Could you hypnotize really? through a screen? Um, <laughs> this is maybe. A that we yeah, all know. I think so. Yeah. 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 It's really just about helping someone relax oh, and get to that. Try that with me before our rehearsal. <laughs> 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 I could use some of that, Chris. <laughs> You're doing great. Yeah. Uh, Maybe he's already used it and you just didn't know. Yeah, exactly. I mean, <laughs> just like slide the like yeah. just slide these little suggestions yeah, in. Yeah, exactly. And... All right. Well, um, <laughs> this seems like a good time to take a break. We're gonna take a break and we'll come back with headline. Hey guys, I just wanted to take a second to uh, talk about our show sponsors. Coho is a theater that's located in Northwest Portland, and their mission is to broaden perspectives and cultivate empathy through vibrant and intimate productions. If you're looking to get involved with Coho or interested in seeing a show, uh, you can check them out um, at 2257 Northwest Raleigh Street in Portland, Oregon, or you can look at their website, which is cohoproductions.org. Our other show sponsor is virtualsonicreality.com, which is a production company that specializes in Recording and audio format entertainment, such as podcasts and audio dramas. Uh, feel free to visit the website at virtualsonicreality.com. And now back to the show. Now it's time for headlines. Everybody's favorite segment of the show. Yes. Headlines. So this is, the, this is the point in the show where we bring up topics from the news and we get your take on them. Um, so I'm going to start. Start with one that I saw yesterday that caught my eye, and I think it has a lot to do with um, what's going on right now in Portland. So, this headline reads, An explosive device used at a gender reveal party caused fire and mass evacuations in California. What? (laughs) Yeah. So, someone's gender reveal party went terribly wrong. Well, it went right. They had an explosive device that, like, sprayed a bunch of whatever colored smoke is supposed to be associated with that baby's genitals, and they <laughs> exploded it in the middle of, like, a yeah. like a grass field. Yeah. And then it all caught on fire, and now that was, like, one of the and now people are fleeing like for their lives. forest fire right now. So, <laughs> how do you feel about no. that? Yeah. So, I guess the question is, how do you feel about gender reveal parties? And... <laughs> How do you this feel? is like, I, I, yeah, I, I wasn't sure what you meant at first. Um, uh, so this is a thing where, like, if you have a baby, then you bring your baby and you invite friends, and then you don't like you don't tell them ahead of time, like what if what the sex is. Well, you, usually, and, I think the way it works is that the mother knows, but the father doesn't know, 
And so oh. it's like a party. Like they find out beforehand, yeah. like, and you know, from an ultrasound. I had a friend. It's kind of like a, like a baby shower. Yeah, it's like a baby shower where okay. the father okay. finds out the sex of the baby. Okay. <laughs> I didn't realize that's what a gender reveal party was. Yeah. <laughs> that's just more general. That, that sounds terrible. <laughs> I think they should have had a birthday party clown in a pinata. Yeah, hey, there you go. Pinata is a way better <laughs> idea. <work>. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Makes it work for us performers. Yeah, you know, I, my thing is that people who have gender reveal parties also have baby showers. So it just, to me, feels a little redundant. It's part of like the wedding industrial complex. Kind of, you <laughs> yeah, know yeah exactly. I mean. <laughs> yeah, Way to get more gifts. <laughs> yeah. No, here's the thing is, you know, regardless how you feel about having a gender reveal party, the fact that they burn down half of California... <laughs> <laughs> it's got to be i don't know i feel like and and now we have this you know smoke over portland so yeah. when i saw this headline i was wondering if that had anything to do with what's I going on here so we've got our own fires right now oh my gosh i was terrified last night with all that wind yeah but yeah did you guys did you guys experience any of that any of the rolling blackouts or anything like that no, no. Half my neighborhood blacked out, but I was in the safe zone. But yeah, we had a bunch of big trees fall and, uh, yeah. you know, topple down some power lines and stuff. Just yeah. happy people are safe. That stuff's kind of scary, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I only know a couple people who lost power, but um, it seems like a lot of people were affected. So yeah, I... yeah we lost power. Oh, you lost power? Yeah. Yeah. And it was really smoky. Um, yeah, it was smoky. And the wind was kicking. Oh, I mean, the wind was blowing really hard and um the smoke was like our house is like these old single pane windows so it was felt like it was it's getting in through all those little oh, cracks you know yeah. um, so it got into the house yeah a little bit um but you know we just like lit some candles and um hung out and we talked and yeah no tv no internet like didn't want to use our phones too much because the batteries would die you know yeah, that makes sense so you guys were prepared for this. <laughs> Are you a, um, an outdoorsy type of person? Do you have like camping gear and stuff like that? Fly fisherman, he said. I do, yeah. And we have a gas grill outside that we could fire up if need be, but uh, we don't have a generator or anything like that. I suppose we could charge our phones on our car. Oh, okay. We can go up and fire yeah. up the car if we needed to Car's do that. The generator. But, yeah. Um, okay. Um, my headline it was, and I, I, I don't have the exact headline here anymore. <laughs> Get it but together. It was basically someone had posted a picture and said, like, this is an Antifa war camp in Portland. And it was a picture of the, um, the houseless community they had set up by, you know, by the I-5 and 84 interchange where they had, I think during COVID, they brought out like the pallets and stuff to try to help people have some space. Um, so... That was that was the thing that someone posted and uh, just seemed very misinformed. And I was just, I mean, curious how you feel about that, but also like um, how often it seems that homeless people are viewed as violent and how much of an issue that is in the in the community. Well, that's kind of what my show is about. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I think they're yeah they're often painted in a very ill light. I can't speak to that headline totally because my my mind is still kind of reeling from trying to imagine that image with that headline it's yeah. very uh a little disturbing um but yeah i mean i think uh, what my show speaks to not my show but the folks that i spoke with i mean most of them really you know talked about how uh you know misrepresented they feel whether it's that they're violent or they're you know they're all addicted to drugs they're all strung out on meth they're all they just don't want to work mm. um you know, that they're causing all this kind of uh, destruction in the community, all this, you know, the dirt and the needles everywhere and the poor hygiene. It's um, it's very offensive to a lot of them because a lot of them, you know, um, from the stories that I've heard, uh, you know, the reality is they don't have access to, you know, hygiene facilities. They don't have access to, um, you know, just basic resources to help them, you know, kind of get by day to day. Um, and a lot of them don't have drug problems. That's not why they're on their streets at all. But right. yeah, it's so easy to pigeonhole people in their experiences. Um, just like we're seeing in the news, whatever news headline you bring up, it's like, oh, it's just another way we can kind of keep pigeonholing and keep mm-hmm. uh, just really narrowing um, these stories down until there's just no human element to them at all. Um, the dehumanizing of right. each other. Yeah overall no matter what subject matter we bring up i think is one of the most 
um, upsetting things I see happening in the world right now. Uh, no matter yeah. what side you're on, where you are, it's just like, oh my gosh, everything is much more complicated than any of these media headlines or articles are really uh, allowing <laughs> yeah. space for right now. And I think right. uh, that's where theater can come in. <laughs> yeah, hopefully. Yeah. Area. Mm -hmm. yeah. I've been noticing that too, especially in like the mainstream media. There's just, uh, there's this need to control, you know, everyone's trying to control the narrative from their point of view. And especially with the way that the right is framing things. It's the, this demonization and and just like removal of humanity, especially of houseless people. And it's it's sickening to see because, you know, Trump wants to go around and say, clean up your cities and all this kind of stuff. But he has no idea what caused all this, you know, and I talk to houseless people as well. And um, and I'm always surprised to hear their stories about how like a lot of them have traveled here and you know, they were really trying to, they're like refugees, right? Like they're trying, they were trying to find a place that had a little bit more to offer people like them. And so that here they end up on the West Coast and um, there's more resources, there's surplus here, there's, uh, you know, a lot of help here. But from the media perspective, it just looks like, you know, there's this congregation, of, you know, people that are, you know, yeah. deplorables or whatever. And um, <laughs> they're always like, how do we clean up the streets? It's like, maybe fix the problems, yeah. you know, like, you know, the, yeah. Yeah. It's yeah. It's much bigger than just providing hygiene facilities, which yeah. we need more of. But yeah, that's, that's not doing anything to solve the root problem. Yeah. Right. Why folks are on the street to begin with. But I, actually, I feel like you're the perfect person to ask this question. So what do you think needs to be done? What, if from, from your perspective, how do we help these people for real? That is such a complicated, mm -hmm. such, I mean, that's just so complicated, sure. but let me start with the things that I know and that I've observed. Um, and then there's so much more to unpack beyond that. Yeah. I think from working in the emergency department as a social worker, what I see on the front lines of that is because we get so many unhoused folks who come into the ER, just trying to get kind of basic um, needs met, basic resources met. Um, it's everything from lack of access to adequate mental health care. Our mental health care system is one of the worst uh, ranked in the country um, for access uh, to care. Um, so there's that, a lot of mental health issues and challenges, um, lack of access to uh, substance use treatment for those who are struggling with addiction, which is just all around us. Um, not to stigmatize people on the streets is that they're all addicts, right. but there's a lot of addiction on the streets and, and they're not able to really access, I think, true treatment. Yeah. Um, and the treatment we have available for them is um, often subpar and just very limited. Um, so those are certainly some things um, from a social worker perspective that the challenges I have in connecting folks. And then I think from, from the, some of the stories I heard, I think there's also a lack of understanding, even probably on my part, to really comprehend what it's like to live on the streets for a long time and the challenges of actually becoming housed that a lot of them actually found getting in housing for the first time to also be tra traumatic for them, which might be hard for us to understand. Yeah. But I think it's the idea that we need to be a little bit more sympathetic and empathetic to kind of complex lived experiences. And maybe not everyone can be sustained in like a, a proper apartment with, you know, a subsidized apartment. You know, maybe some people do need a tent because that's where they're more comfortable. Maybe we need to have more flexible kind of living options for humans. Yeah. Um, that not everyone is comfortable kind of like living in a box in suburbia or in a, you know, an apartment downtown where the only ap apartment affordable to them, they're surrounded by, you know, drug addiction and, and violence and aggression. And it's, and they already have PTSD and it's too traumatizing. They're like, I'm more comfortable on the streets. I'm not staying here. Mm -hmm. um, so it's lots, it's lots of, lots of those. Um, and then the housing is a whole other issue, just access <laughs> to affordable housing. Right. So um, I could go on. <laughs> no, thank you very much. I feel like that, that gives us enough to, first of all, you know, give these people a little bit more humanity and, and, you know, but also it, it helps us to think about the types of social change that we need to fight for. And I mean, a lot of people seem to be like-minded on these topics, but we still have a lot of work to do. Yeah. And it's just so, I, I mean, not to harp on it, but like the fact that there's so many empty new apartments around is just oh. a, a crime. And it's, and to see, and I, and I work in an, um, installing TVs in people's homes and a lot of them are like new homes and, they're just building these new homes out in the suburbs still, even though, I, I don't know, it's just, there's just such a disconnect between housing and the people who own the housing and the way that real estate gets looked at as like a token of value rather than a place where people are living, you mm -hmm. know? 
So, yeah. They attach all these weird uh, things to unhoused, like lower income folks. Like a lot of them have these like rules that you have to maintain your sobriety in order to maintain your housing. Like, how is none, that going to help? Right. Do that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, why are we such jerks to them? I mean, yeah. you know, you're struggling with PTSD, you're struggling with complex mental health issues, like all sorts of things. We're like, and, you know, you can't have any marijuana or you're out. Like, wow. I don't know. I think we need to like loosen up a little bit. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like, for sure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right, um, last headline. Okay. Facebook will pay users to log off before the 2020 election. What? Yep. So it says that Facebook is offering users money to refrain from using the site and Instagram in the weeks leading up to the November election. Just to... Yep, just to get off of Facebook. Wow. What do you think about that? I don't understand. Is that true? That doesn't make any sense. Yeah, I, I think so. so like, what I, I read into this a little bit more, and it seems like they're paying people around like one hundred and forty dollars or something like like I a stipend. I haven't been on Facebook in three months. I get off. Why? I mean, so I don't want to be on. People argue media. with their aunt, you know, on right. wow, because they're worried about the polarity. I know they've been taking a lot of heat for you know um, stoking. Um, you know, uh, because people get in their bubbles and everything and there's a lot of fake news and it, it led to recently it shut down at some conservative sites and then a lot of like anarchist and left wing sites, too, because um, they were just getting rid of bias. And um, so I feel like this is I can't believe they're going to pay people yeah. money to log off. Well, they also got in trouble in 2016 because Facebook was known to be one of the, the assets that Russians used. Yeah. To true. influence the election. So maybe they're just trying to cover their own, you know. <laughs> I don't know. Own, you know what? <laughs> Would you kind of, if so, if election, depending on the election goes one way, so they can at least say it wasn't because of Facebook and right. the Russians. Right. Yeah, wow. I, well, you know, I, I, I don't know what exactly Mark Zuckerberg is thinking. <laughs> the <Really>? question is <laughs> are you guys going to get off of Facebook and collect your $150? Well, see, I was going to get off Facebook. I didn't know I could collect. So I'm yeah, well, might as well collect now. <laughs> That's what I'm saying. <laughs> I'm, uh, I'm disappointed now. I've been off Facebook for three years. You got to yeah. get back on and then get off again. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I had to stop. During... I had to join now. <laughs> I had to stop um, during COVID at the beginning because I was just like getting caught too in it. And then it was, I don't know, I was just interacting with the internet in a different way than I had before. And... Yeah. Took a break, but Instagram is still my, yeah, you're still on that. Still my addiction, so I don't know if I if you have to do that too. 140 or Instagram? <laughs> I don't know, man. I don't know. What about Twitter? What about Twitter? Are they Twitter's gonna, safe. Are they gonna pay you? Tw Twitter's Twitter is not safe. paying you. <laughs> There's nothing incendiary on Twitter. Don't worry. <laughs> Twitter's just There's no facts. influence there. Yeah, yeah. It's yeah. Just, just all facts. <laughs> <laughs> At least it's all framed as opinion, I guess. Yeah. Well, I don't know. I'm not on there. But. Great. All right. Well, let's do plugs. Plugs. All right. So this is the point in the show where you can plug anything to um, our audience, our huge subscriber base, and, um, tens and tens of anything tens. you want them to know. Um, it can be books. It can be a play you want them to see. Anything like that. So. I will I will replug Sammy Joe Pfeiffer and her music. Please go to Bandcamp because her music's amazing. She has several albums up there. Um, her work is just so beautiful. Um, and then I guess I was just thinking about recently. I'm with my uh, being a fan of documentary theater. Um, Eric uh, Jensen and Jessica Blank. Um, they've created numerous documentary uh, shows in New York City. Um, several this year, but one. They created during the pandemic um, that's called The Line and it's available via live stream via the public theater. Um, and I was just been really fascinated. They did interviews with a lot of the frontline um, emergency workers in New York City mm -hmm. when things were kind of really at its worst. Um, so just kind of a collection of those experiences of being on the front line of the pandemic. Um, and once again, how um, theater and storytelling can kind of offer us a little bit of a distance from some tragic um, events, but give us kind of a new diverse perspective, uh, a new way to kind of listen to the world around us um, that the media certainly can't offer us right now. But I think sometimes theater and storytelling can. Mm -hmm. So it's called The Line. I would check it out. Nice. Yeah, I should plug Coho Productions. Um, Coho is the, the theater that we're partnered up with co-producing this show. Street Roots, of course. Um, and um, I mean, I, I, you know, I thought about this. I'm like, there are so many companies and theater companies in town right now that are 
being really creative and innovative right now. I know Portland Center Stage, Arts Repertory Theater, uh, Third Rail, uh, Hand to Mouth, Pete, um, uh, Many Hats, Portland Playhouse. Um, all of these theater companies I know are stirring the pot right now, shaking the tree and coming up with really unique, creative ways to um, either record audio versions of new plays or, uh, or classic plays. Um, Zoom theater is happening. Yeah. <laughs> um, parking lot theater was that like risk reward did like a drive in. Like you sit in your car and see a live performance in front of you. So I just want to keep encouraging people to, um, you know, keep loving the arts, keep loving our local theater companies and and our support our artists in that way. We're, we're, we're determined to create. We feel like we can, we're all compelled to, you know, it's like, it's, we have to do it. (laughs) And um, um, so, yeah, check some stuff out. Yes. Great. I'm going to go ahead and plug um, Going Viral, which is a YouTube video produced by Desert Island Studios, um, starring Ashley Mellinger and Samson Siharath. Um, nice. I just saw that the other day, and it's, uh, without saying too much, it's kind of about being in quarantine, and I totally identified. I was just like, wow, this is such a good going uh, viral <laughs> yeah 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 it's such it's such okay. a good re- uh, representation of being stir crazy i guess for sure and just also what it's like to be in quarantine it's almost like a document so uh, definitely check that out on youtube and um i have been starting to get involved with um a friend's production well it's it's just uh just starting now with a bunch of people from the the portland protest community um and uh, this uh, artist, Jordan Shea, who's really great um, performance artist in town. And she just built a puppet theater and they're going to do the anti-racist abolitionist puppet show. Um, and it's going to come to the streets near you, um, specifically, hopefully, like um, like outside where people are eating in front of restaurants in really crowded places. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's going to be really renegade. And the people involved are like really, really cool, very... Uh, I was going to say ballsy, but, uh, <laughs> you know, uh, just very uh, brave people. So I, I imagine it will stir some things up. And so keep your eye out for that. Nice. <laughs> yeah. Great. Great. I just want to thank you guys so much for coming on the show today and, and talking to us about all of this stuff that we talked about today. And um, I really appreciate it. So thank you so much. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you for having us. Yeah. yeah thank you, guys. You so appreciate much. it. Thank you for listening to this episode of Radical Listening. If you have questions or would like to reach out, feel free to reach out to our email, which is radicallisteningpodcast at gmail.com or visit the Coho Theater website for more information. And thanks for listening.